Um, just before we start, you know, our first Bible reading is a passage that was written well over a thousand years before Jesus. So it is part of the law that God gave his people after he brought them out of the slavery in Egypt. Um, by this point in history, God had grown Abraham's family into the nation of Israel to be his people, distinct from the nations around them. Now he's teaching them how to live as his people, a people who reflect his will and his character. So that's just a little bit of context for this reading. It's not a very big one. Do not hate your brother in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in his guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And now we're going to Luke chapter 7. And verses 36 to the end of the chapter. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, Hmm, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he cancelled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not pour oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. This is the word of the Lord. Well, friends, we are going to spend a little bit of time in Leviticus and then return to that passage in Luke, so that would be really worthwhile um, having that open in front of you. Allow me just to organise myself here. Now, in 1994, one of the classic movies of my teen years was released. It's epic. Jim Carrey, Jeff Daniels, 
Dumb and Dumber. If you've never seen it, you've not really missed much, actually. It's a pretty wacky film. Um, it's about these two... It's this, it's this whole bonkers road trip between uh, two best friends who are constantly making dumb decisions. And all good movies, even really low-brow, poor-quality comedy, needs a point of crisis, right? A point of crisis and its resolution. And the point of crisis comes between a fight, rather predictably, between these two best friends around something really dumb to do with, you know, running out of fuel in the big van that they're driving across America. And so anyway, big fight, they head off on their separate ways. And then comes the reconciliation scene, which in a ridiculous movie, it's pretty ridiculous. And yet it's actually, in its comedy, quite poignant. Because... You know, Harry is walking despondently along the road and Lloyd drives up behind him in the middle of the desert landscape on this ridiculous tiny little moped scooter. And Harry looks at him and he's like, just when I think you couldn't possibly do anything dumber, you go and do something like this and totally redeem yourself. And all is forgiven. And they're friends again. And off they go on their bonkers road trip to the other side of America. Now only they're dinking on the back of this tiny little moped. Now, in many ways, it's a pretty ridiculous comment on forgiveness. But it's actually, I think, a really accurate reflection of how so many people think about forgiveness. See, we have got all kinds of problems with forgiveness. And problem number one, I think we often think, well, they just don't deserve it. It's the mindset that says that forgiveness is really only possible when, when someone else has done enough to earn it. As Harry said to Lloyd, just when I think you couldn't possibly do anything dumber, you go and do something like this and totally redeem yourself. Now, in the real world today, I think we see this playing out in all kinds of ways, the expectations of people making up for their wrong. Perhaps it's the public display of sorrow that somehow needs to be broadcast via, via Twitter or wherever it might be. Maybe it's the public shaming. There's been enough of that. They've been redeemed. Maybe it's the demonstration with the appropriate checks written to the appropriate charities. The problem that many people have with forgiveness is that it's something that people need to earn. It's not something offered. And while that can feel for a moment quite empowering for the victim, it actually leaves them dependent on the other per person, the perpetrator's willingness and their capacity to earn their forgiveness. It becomes profoundly unsatisfying and actually disempowering. Well, problem number two, I just don't have it in me. I think this is the recognition that forgiveness is hard. It's really hard. And for many people under many circumstances, it is just not realistic to feel forgiveness towards the person who has wronged them. And the problem with that is that we just don't have the resources to forgive. I just can't bring myself to it. But perhaps the growing category of concern that people have with forgiveness, well, it's more philosophical. This is problem number three, and it's the concern that forgiveness is actually unjust. Uh, in the book that I mentioned of Tim Keller, um, he has collated a, help, a number of really helpful um, perspectives that show the depth of the very real concern about this. And for one example, he refers to a 2015 mass shooting of nine African-American churchgoers by white supremacist Dylan Roof. Let me look up the right page here so that I can quote the, the, um, the paragraph for you. You see, relatives of the nine African-Americans killed in Charleston, South Carolina, publicly said to the shooter, Dylan Roof, I forgive you. But a Washington Post opinion piece by Stacey Patton responded that, 
black America should stop, excuse me, forgiving white racists. Black America should stop forgiving white racists. The expectation and admiration for black people's forgiveness, she wrote, is about protecting whiteness. It enables white denial about the harms that racist violence creates. Our constant forgiveness only perpetuates the cycle of attacks and abuse. I think that many people have come to think that forgiveness is actually dangerous. We've seen that sentiment in public display around comments around sexual abuse or historical reflections on events such as the Holocaust. The concern is that forgiveness enables abuse by, by excusing bad behaviour and, and blaming victims if they actually struggle to forgive. We have many problems with forgiveness. And probably many more questions that we might think of, but I wonder if you can relate to any of those. Aside from what you've seen in the media, in the public conversation, I wonder if some of that resonates with you. The sense that the person who's wronged you, they just don't deserve to be forgiven, or actually, I know what it feels like when I just can't bring myself to forgive, or, or that perhaps, perhaps it would even be wrong to f offer that forgiveness because that would just gloss over the wrong that has been done. And yet alongside all of that, we still have a deep longing for forgiveness. A British author, Douglas Murray, has written this recently. We live in a world where actions can have consequences we could never have imagined, where guilt and shame are more at hand than ever, and where we have no means whatsoever of redemption. We do not know who could offer it, who could accept it, and whether it's even a desirable quality compared to an endless cycle of certainty and denunciation. That's a bleak picture, right? And his conclusion is that we need some means of forgiveness such as that which is found in the life and death of Jesus Christ. And he is not a Christian writer. And Douglas Murray is an outspoken atheist. And yet I think like so many in the world, he sees our need for forgiveness. And friends, if you can resonate with any of this, I want to acknowledge that this can be hard stuff. There's nothing kind of abstract or theoretical about this. It can be very painful, personal things to be thinking through. As I've already acknowledged, we can't possibly cover off everything today and I cannot possibly know everything that's happening in our lives as, as people. And so if things you know, hit a raw nerve for you, can I encourage you to come and talk either to me or to someone that you can trust? But as we spend this month thinking through the hope we have because of Jesus, with all the problems with forgiveness, I want us to be encouraged that the Bible teaches us that there is a very real and deep hope that forgiveness is possible. So without trying to cover it all off, I'm going to have a look at just a couple of passages that help us to understand what gospel-fueled forgiveness looks like and the hope that we have in Jesus. So Leviticus 19 that Julie read for us. It begins with a fairly simple and direct instruction, doesn't it? A do not hate your fellow Israelite in your heart. Now, like many things in the Bible, this is a command that actually shows that God is just as concerned about as our attitudes in our heart as our actions because it's a command that God, God is the only one that will know whether you're obeying that, isn't he? Because he's the only one that really knows our hearts. So it's actually something for us to reflect on in our relationship with him as we think about our relationships with others, that even in private, do not hate. But there's an alternative, isn't there? Oops, I'm sorry, I've moved the screen away too quickly. Rebuke your neighbour frankly. 
That is to say, have a conversation about it. Speak about it. Don't let the hatred simmer and the resentment build. This is about restoring relationship and talking it through. But there's this slightly awkward clause. Rebuke your neighbour frankly so that you will not share in their guilt. What's that mean? That somehow the victim shares the responsibility of what the perpetrator did? No, this is not what has been come to be known as, as victim blaming. But I think it's a biblical precursor to a, a concept that many people are becoming more mindful of, that, that silence is complicity, that we need to speak up. But this is relational. This is not telling us to speak out to the world about our outrage at how someone has treated us. This is relational, speaking with them, that they may not continue unaware of the fracture in the relationship of the wrong that's been done and the hurt that's been caused. This is a picture of pursuing relationship, even when wrong has been done. And then verse 18, which sums that up, the same idea in different words, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge, because that's the fruit of hatred in our heart, isn't it? Might be just as quiet and private, but it's the nature of the human heart that we seek revenge. We want to settle accounts. It might just be the snide remarks that we make or the way that we subtly undermine them, but that's our natural tendency, to take revenge. And God says, no, don't, don't do it. Instead, another alternative, love your neighbour as yourself. That's the opposite of bearing a grudge, of allowing a wrong deed to cause hatred that festers into revenge. Love your neighbour as yourself. But there's something very profound going on here. You know, even as Douglas Murray and numerous other people have observed, none of us want to live in that world where any mistake that we make could destroy us without any hope of recovery. It's like the social media fear that once it's out there, it's out there forever. You can't retract it. So we all live knowing that we're going to mess up and hoping that others will forgive us. That's how we would love ourselves, believing that we can be forgiven for wrong. And yet we struggle to show that same grace to others. And at the heart of loving your neighbour as yourself, there's something very, very important for us to see. It's about knowing that you are a human and treating them as a human. You see, at its, at its core, the big problem with unforgiveness, with withholding forgiveness, is that we fail to love our neighbours as ourselves. We dehumanise ourselves and we dehumanise them. Let me just briefly explain what I mean. To remain unforgiving... It dehumanises me if I'm going to bear that grudge and seek that revenge because I can only bear that grudge against the other person if I'm willing to overlook my own sinful human nature. To bear the grudge, I have to see myself as something superior, something not really human. But what's more, to remain unforgiving towards that person, it dehumanises them because I can only bear that grudge against them if I make them something less than a fellow member of the human race. They become, well, they're my enemy. They are the wrong that they've done. And clearly the opposite of bearing a grudge and seeking revenge is to forgive. That's a pretty good definition of forgiveness right there. But here in Leviticus 19, God doesn't actually say forgive. He says love. Because at the end of the day, that is what forgiveness is. To love the one who has wronged you, recognising that we share this in common, our humanity. Now, to be clear, you can't command feelings. So when God commands his people to love, 
That's a command. Love your neighbor as yourself. He's not telling us to do the impossible and conjure up a feeling of love. He's teaching us to make a choice, choosing to love. And I think that helps us to see you know, a, a problem we have with forgiveness too. We don't necessarily feel forgiveness. You choose it in the same way that you choose not to bear a grudge, not to seek revenge. And I wonder if it, this verse comes to mind for you if you've read the words of Jesus because of all of the commands that God gave his people in the Old Testament, you know, three massive books of the law in Exodus, Leviticus and Numbers and into Deuteronomy, Jesus says that it is this commandment that best sums up how we ought to live towards each other. He said it there in, in, in Matthew, I'm sorry, I don't have it on the screen for you, Matthew 22, 39 to 40, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments, is what Jesus taught. Because it's such a pithy summary statement. Love your neighbour as yourself. But did you notice that back there in Leviticus 18, that's not how God ended at that point. Love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. Because when we hate and bear a grudge and seek revenge, when we don't forgive, we implicitly treat ourselves as God. No, says God, love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. Elsewhere, he makes the connection even clearer. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And in remembering that he is the Lord, we're reminded, yep, he's the Lord of him and me. And as a side note, this, I think, helps us to see the difference between forgiveness, which we are called to offer and reconciled relationship which requires the other to repent. That's a whole other sermon. But the good news is that Jesus gives us the resources to pursue that too. But for now, Jesus spells out for us. Do not bear a grudge or hate in your heart. Don't seek revenge. The implication is loving them as yourself. Forgive them. I am the Lord. Now, this might all leave us just feeling, well, about as hopeless as we started, perhaps. Because it's all well and good to be told what you should do. But how on earth do we do it? How could we possibly live this out? Well, it all comes back to this connection between love and forgiveness, as God makes clear to us in one of the most famous verses in the Bible, John 3:16. Uh, this is such a famous verse. Uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. When we read this, I think for many of us, we read, God loved the world this much that he gave his son. Now, it is true. God does love the world enough, that much, to give his son. But John 3.16 is actually saying, thus God loved the world. In this way, God loved the world. The world, Not the quantity, but the, the quality of his love. What is the way? Well, back in the verse before, 14 and 15, we taught that, that Jesus must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life in him. And that's explored further in verse 16 and 17 here, that God gave his one and only son to give eternal life, which is to save, it, to save us from our sin, from our evil. God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that we could be forgiven. The connection between love and forgiveness. Forgiven because God is just and our evil cannot go unpunished. Forgiven because God is love and he longs for a relationship. 
God loves the world in this way by showing very costly grace. And friends, I think right there is that is the hope for forgiveness because we see that forgiveness is not incompatible with justice. Forgiveness is actually the acknowledgement that justice is, has not been done. You see, that means, though, that, that forgiveness is always costly. It's what makes it hard. In this way, God so loved the world. In this way, he gave at great cost to himself. Forgiveness is always costly. So for a really trivial example, my eldest son, currently seven years old, 10 years' time, 17, let's say he borrows our car for whatever reason, under whatever circumstances, he crashes it and he comes to me and he says, sorry, 17, I'm going to take a rough guess, but that'll probably be a debt that he can't afford to repay. So for me to forgive him, that will come at a cost to me. Either I have to pay to fix the car or replace it, or I have to pay the inconvenience of not having a car. Either way, to forgive my son in this hypothetical future situation, which I'll be praying doesn't happen, forgiveness is costly. It's the nature of forgiveness. It's, it's willingly absorbing the cost of the wrong rather than seeking the payment of revenge. Forgiveness is always costly, and we do well to name it as such. Because it's not just glossing over justice. It's willingly choosing to absorb the cost of revenge. And friends, that is why we can't do it on our own. It's simply, it costs too much. Because we have no way of offering forgiveness and genuinely dealing with injustice. You watch the TV news, every victim that comes out of a court, having got the guilty verdict for the person that took away their loved one, will acknowledge it will never bring their loved one back. But there is hope for forgiveness. Because this is how God showed his love to the world in rebellion against him, in the cross of Christ. In the cross of Christ, he took upon himself the cost of forgiveness. And it's on the cross of Christ that we see the love of God as the Son of God willingly takes upon himself the just penalty for our sin. He doesn't exact revenge. He doesn't blame shift. He takes the cost upon himself. John 3.16, in this way, God loved the world. But on the cross too, God affirms the terrible injustice of evil. You want to know that God cares, you look at the cross. He, he shows that he sees the abuse, he knows the hurt, he appreciates the plight of the victim and he is outraged. He is indignant and he takes action. So if you have ever experienced a great injustice at the hands of another, know that God does not sweep it under the carpet or minimise it tell you to get over and move on. He knows your experience is real. And on the cross, we see the wrath of God against the sin and injustice of this world far more vividly than we could ever otherwise know it. It's the cross of Christ that shows us that justice and forgiveness, they're not incompatible. In fact, it's the cross that makes forgiveness possible. Not only for us to be forgiven by God, but for us to offer it to others too because of what Jesus done. You know, all the way through the New Testament, that is the premise, that when we, are, when we are called to love others, it's not because we are generators of that love, but because we're conduits of it. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Love as you have been loved. His love and mercy 
makes our love and mercy possible. And that's why we read this beautiful account from Luke chapter 7. I'm not going to dwell on it, but just allow us to, to sit there at the, at the mealtime and to reflect on what we've just read. You know, the scene is set for us. One of the Pharisees, it's, it's, it's a dinner at a Pharisee's house. This is an upright member of the community. He's, he's passionate for the law of God and he wants to see it honoured and obeyed. And then the contrast in May, is made in verse 37 because a woman who lived a sinful life enters. I mean, even the way that she describes already tells us this woman's been dehumanised, right? She's not given a name. She's known only for her sinfulness. To be clear, I don't think that's how Luke thinks of her. Certainly not how Jesus sees her, but it's helping us to understand how everyone at the table kind of thinks of her, this sinful woman. Well, we see this woman's broken heart. She stands behind Jesus because he's at the table and she's not welcome. This is as close as she can get. And she's broken. She's in tears, crying so much that he's not sitting at the table on a chair, Western style. He's, he's reclining, his feet out behind him as he lies at the table, Middle Eastern style. He cr- she cries so much that, that her tears are falling on his feet. And now she's not standing anymore because she's wiping her feet with, his feet with her t- hair. In her brokenness, she's kneeling. And in her humility, she has stooped so low that she will kiss his feet. Those feet that have been walking in sandals all day through the dust and the grime of of unpaved paths. And then in absolute decadence, at great cost, she pours perfume on his feet. And that's the outflow of a humble, broken heart that's been excluded by, by everyone respectable, but who knows the forgiveness that she has in Jesus. And then we see the Pharisees' uh, lack of love, uh, don't we? Um, We see the Pharisees' lack of love. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. But Jesus knows his heart. And I think we should be confronted by this. Because this Pharisee said this to himself. Like so many of, much of our hatred and and our grudges, it remained internal. But Jesus knew. And he tells the briefest of parables about the forgiveness of debts, about the normal human response to being forgiven so much that in the normal course of things, that that love and respect and honour are given to the one who's forgiven their debt. And so Jesus shows the Pharisee the twofold sin of his heart. Because this Pharisee, who longs to honour the law of God, he has failed to obey Leviticus 19. He's failed to love his neighbour twice over. First, he's failed to love Jesus. If this man were a prophet, he thought with disdain, quietly hating Jesus in his heart. And Jesus sets it out for him. He's not even shown Jesus the common courtesy of the culture of the day to offer him a bowl of water to wash those filthy feet. He's shunned him by not giving them the standard greeting of a polite kiss on the cheek. He's He's not offered him the normal gesture of kindness and hospitality of some oil to moisturise the skin that's been dried and cracked in the, in the climate of the day. We can only guess why. But by this point in Luke's Gospel, we've seen Jesus say and do a lot of things that might have rebuked and offended a respected Pharisee. And in his heart, he held this against Jesus as his actions demonstrated. So he's hated Jesus but he's also hated the woman too. If 
this, if this man were a prophet, he would know who this is touching him and what kind of woman she is. You can, you can hear the disdain, can't you? Someone so unworthy, what kind of woman she is that she's a sinner. And right there in this brief sentence, he's laid bare, he's kind of, his dehumanising lack of love. She's not a fellow human created by the same loving creator, but, but a sinner known for nothing other than the sum of what she's got wrong. Now, let's be fair to the Pharisee. He hasn't done anything more than what most of us do at any point when we bear a grudge grudge against a fellow creature. But he's also dehumanised himself as he presumes to distinguish this woman, a sinner, from himself, who by implication he thinks he doesn't have anything to forgive. That's the point that Jesus makes, isn't it, in the parable. This man simply does not see the massive debt that he needs to settle with his creator the one who created this woman, who he's treated with such disdain. In fact, the very creator who's sitting at his dining table, who he's privately hating in his heart. Now again, in fairness to the Pharisee, he's not doing anything more than any of us. Anytime we look at the wrong of another person and we place ourselves in a position of God over them. And that's what's so radical about Jesus' concluding words. You see, this woman is not forgiven because of the love that she has shown Jesus. But rather, her her love is a reflection of the forgiveness that she has found in him. Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You know, those guests at the table, they're, they're right to be kind of gobsmacked by this. Who is this? that even forgives sins. In many ways, that's the question that Luke's Gospel is all about unpacking. And if we read on, we see that actually this one who forgives sins, he's not sweeping it under the carpet. That's not forgiveness. He's not making an excuse based on circumstance or life experience or she couldn't really help herself. That's not forgiveness. Jesus is not the one who demands a sufficient public display of humiliation, the writing of checks to the correct charity. That's not forgiveness. Who is this that can forgive sins? Well, this is the one who came to give his own life as a ransom for many. Who came to pay the price that enables justice and mercy to go hand in hand. And so as that plays out in our own life, we remember that he is the one who paid the price for every evil done under the sun. He is the one who enables us to live out what was impossible under the law, to love our neighbour as ourselves, not bearing a grudge, not hating in our heart, but forgiving because we've been forgiven in Christ. He who has forgiven little loves little, by implication, those who have been forgiven much. Forgive. Friends, as I conclude, I, I get that it's one thing for me to stand here and to help us to reflect on the words of God when... At many points in my life, I've had to dig deep into the grace of God to show grace to others. And yet, I know that there are levels of pain and abuse that I've never had call to forgive. And for that reason, I wanted to share with you the thoughts of of Rachel Den Hollander as someone who, who has lived through this and in that found the hope of forgiveness in the cross of Jesus. So this is the author of um, this article that we've got out the back here. Let me remind you, Rachel Den Hollander, speaking up um, uh, as a US Olympic gymnast about the abuse at the hands 
of the team doctor. Let me read a paragraph from this paper on justice and forgiveness. In the incarnation, that's Christmas, Jesus coming to us. In the incarnation and at the cross, the son sets aside his divine prerogatives. The, The strong becomes weak. God himself enters into human brokenness and accomplishes on behalf of mankind what humans neither deserve nor can accomplish by themselves. The one who is owed obedience as creator enters into creation to render that which is due to him. At the cross, God acts for others to overcome evil, uphold justice, free the enslaved and restore creation. God himself perfectly identifies with the victim because he himself has willingly subjected himself to injustice. And one of the things that Rachel Den Hollander has done so helpfully is clarifying that that this doesn't mean that if you forgive someone that there is no room for pursuing legal justice. She's a lawyer and she continues to work tirelessly for the cause of justice. There are many reasons why that might be exactly the right thing to do, though it will not be for the sake of revenge. Instead, it will be the best thing to do when it is driven by a love for God and for your neighbour. So to continue with Rachel's words, an attitude of justice longs for wrongs to be made right and for wrongdoing to be punished. An attitude of forgiveness longs for the inclusion and restoration even of our enemies, for them to cross over from death to life. These two are compatible with one another. But what's excluded is an attitude of hatred, vengeance and revenge, which longs for the destruction and the exclusion of those who have harmed us. They're really powerful words from someone who has had to live this. But in case you wonder, how, what, what on earth does this look like, even in the most terrible kind of context of abuse? I want to finish with an extract from Rachel's victim impact statement that she read in the courtroom at NASA's trial, looking at him at the time. She said, I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt. That could sound like vengefulness, couldn't it? I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Friends, this is the hope for forgiveness that we have in Christ. As he enables us to set aside revenge, to pursue justice in love, to love as we've been loved by him. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, you have been so kind to show us your love for this world, that you sent your one and only Son, that he might die in our place, to show us your indignation at the injustice of this world, to show us your great mercy that as both victims and perpetrators of sin, we might know forgiveness and show forgiveness that in all of this, you grow us to be more like your son in all of his love, in all of his mercy. So we pray you'd keep doing it. In Jesus' name.
Amen.